there's a lot of tribalism, corruption, and conflict of interest in medicine, just like anywhere else. And there's big bucks at, at stake. You, you may recall we interviewed a very senior guy who ran a $3 billion hospital system. He said to me, after the interview, I was shocked. He said to me, you know, it occurred to me that oncologists have a conflict of interest. They're the only doctors who actually profit from the medicines they prescribe. And son of a gun, they're the most expensive things. Diane, in the end, spent her insurance company, uh, paid $570,000 for her chemo treatments. That, that is just simply staggering. Welcome to Grace in 30 on WERA, Arlington's 96.7 FM. I'm Sal Dietry, and tonight joined by my co-host, Ed Mellick. Ed, what's going on, man? How you feeling? Great to be here with you. Well, look, for many, uh, and tonight's topic is, is indeed a very tough topic, but for many, cancer challenges people's faith. For some, it means walking away, meaning there, there can't be a God who would do this to me. For some, it means a, a deepening of faith, really a spiritual transformation that stays with them through the treatment and for the rest of their lives. Well, well sadly, for some cancers in particular, there really is uh, no good results. And the standard of care uh, today subjects patients to very painful treatments of chemotherapy and other drugs lessening their quality of life as, and they pass away. Well, tonight we're going to talk in particular with our co-host Ed Mellick about the experience he had with his uh, ex-wife Diane Mellick, who in July of 2016 discovered that she had pancreatic cancer. And Ed and Diane then began a journey which took them through the medical system and really to a deeper place in their faith in God. And ultimately that faith brought them closer together and helped Diane as she passed into the next life. Uh, you know, Ed, tell us a little bit about your reaction to Diane's sudden diagnosis. Well, we covered it in an interview we did a few weeks ago. But the quick snapshot is, is that Diane and I were married for about, we were together for 25 years, married 22 and a half. And so about 11 years ago, after that period of time, she, she filed for a divorce. And we were separated and divorced. And, and I realized very quickly uh, in, in the process, I got a glimpse of what I call the realness and the power and the beauty of God's grace. I started just, we were enemies at the time, I started laying my life down for her, and, and some of the things that started happening were pretty amazing. So I won't cover all that, but the, the important point is over about eight years, up until the point where she was diagnosed, we, we had sort of rebuilt our relationship. We were still living separately. You know, there was no discussion of getting remarried or anything, but we had a very good relationship. So. I was the first person she called when uh, she, she was concerned about something. They found something in her blood work, and it was a Thursday night when she called, and she said, hey, I'm going in for an, an ultrasound on Friday, and they're going to see what they see. And then she called me that night, Friday night, and she said, hey, they found a mass in my pancreas, and they're going to do a CT scan on Monday morning and sort of confirm what, what their suspicion is. And I got to tell you, it's just jolting when something like that happens because you, you know people, you've heard of many people who go through pancreatic cancer. Her dad had it at age 60. He did not last long. Um, and he had a lot of real problems, same things that she experienced, frankly, 30 years later. And so there was a lot of fear and sadness and um, just it's just shocking. And, and when it's a very serious cancer like that, something that moves really quickly, there's this pressure to move fast. Yeah. yeah, I think Alex Trebek has been diagnosed with this, and he sort of came out early and said, "Well, we're going to fight this. We're going to do. We're going to go after this." 
and I haven't kept up on his prognosis, but to your point, that's sort of the let's get after it reaction. Yeah, it, just, just start with the chemo. Start with the conventional treatments. There's really only three things that the medical community offers to pancreatic uh, cancer patients. That's either surgery. And only 15% of people who are diagnosed are eligible for surgery when they're diagnosed. It's a disease that's typically found you know, in, in the mid-process or, or a little further along. And so the, the tumor is typically wrapped around, around what they call the vasculature inside the, the pancreas. And, and they're like, well, we can't go in there. We'll, we'll cause too much disruption. Diane was borderline inoperable. Uh, her oncologist said, you're almost certainly palliative. And then a surgeon up at Hopkins said, well, I think we can operate, but we'll give you chemotherapy first. But it's very shocking, and, and, and the emotions were tremendous. And I remember at one point when we first met uh, the oncologist, afterwards we had a dinner together, and we stood outside, and she was very yellow, and she had a maddening itch. And I just said to her, you know, I want to pray. And she's like, no, no, I'm going to cry. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I remember saying, well, give me a hug goodbye. And we hugged, and I snuck in a quick prayer anyway. But just, just deep, deep emotion and fear. Uh, the good news was that that changed as, as this thing unfolded. But uh, so that started the journey, and we, we learned a tremendous amount about conventional medicine, about alternative treatments. And, and as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, we learned quite a bit about supernatural healing from some study I did in the Bible. So dig in a little bit more. What are some of the things, you know, over this 21-month period, what are some of the things that you experienced in the healthcare system, both, you know, and then in your quest for alternative medicine, sort of doing a lot of research, a lot of stuff on the internet, uh, there's a lot of stuff now in publication. We hear more about cannabinoids and things like that. It seems that this is taking on a life of its own. Tell us a bit about that, and then in particular, the faith aspect of this, which was the most important of all. Uh, the big thing we learn, I mean, everything we know as, as followers of Christ, that everything is broken, <laughs> whether it's the healthcare industry, our politics, that's really evident these days, everything. So so in terms of conventional medicine, I, what I saw through this was just confirmation that it's both amazing and wonderful and, and terrible. And the, the best examples that I give are when Diane, the reason she was yellow is that the, the tumor was pressing on this bile duct that was releasing a bile, bile passes through the liver and the pancreas, but it couldn't do that, so it was backing up in her blood system. So they went down her throat within a matter of two weeks of, of her, that diagnosis. They put her under, and they went down her throat, and they placed a stent in this small bile duct and also took a, did a biopsy of the tumor. And to this day, I'm amazed at what they did. I mean, the, the, the technology, the stents, the procedures, I mean, all the, the skills and the training and everything that went into that procedure is just simply, I can't fathom it. So in terms of acute care, trying to stop that backup of bile, uh, A plus, I give them. The problem is that with certain cancers right now, they don't—they still don't know what to do. I mean, a tremendous amount of research has occurred over 50 years. A lot of money has been spent. The estimates I've read are $2 trillion has been spent on cancer care in the United States in the past 50 years. That's astounding. And yet, that we've made good progress with blood cancers and with prostate cancer. But things like pancreatic cancer glioblastoma, liver cancer, lung cancer, they're still really, I mean, the, the morbidity rates, the crude death rates have actually risen over these 50 years. So when you, you can encounter something like that, their only solution is something called, they call the standard of care, which is a, some combination of chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. And what happened was they suggested she go on a chemotherapy called fulfirinox. It's a combination of four highly toxic drugs. Three of them are box-label drugs, which means they're so toxic they could kill you or seriously hurt you. 
And it's sort of a combination of incredibly high cost, a tremendous amount of side effects, really bad side effects, and her cancer still spread. And, and one of the things I note is the Fulfirinox alone, it cost 35, nearly $36,000 per treatment. And if you wonder what's wrong with our medical system, that's a, a great example. Yeah, and this is a time, as you say, when, when patients look at the prognosis, they're not good. And while there are clinical trials, they're trials. They're not necessarily guaranteeing anything. And so it's a time, as you say, to take a, to take a pause and look at a few things. One is, what is your quality of life going to be? Two, what are perhaps some options to explore? And then three, obviously, your faith. What are some of the things that, you know, as you... Uh, and Diane went through this, what were some of the things she experienced? Because to come back to a, a faith often requires, it can require great suffering. And this path that went on for a long time, we're talking about 21 months here. What are some of the things that she experienced during this journey? Well, there, there really are two major paths. Uh, one was just her renewal of her relationship with God, which was fantastic. In parallel with that, we're looking at what things can we do, human things you could call them, to, to going to doctors, looking at alternative care to try to address this. And right out of the gate, Diane, it kind of surprised me. She was the person who would, was more consistent in working out and she wanted to eat right. And But she had a very negative reaction to alternative therapies. And she only opened, you know, began considering them really seriously when the chemotherapy initially failed. She had five treatments of this, this fulfirinox. And they ran a, they did a scan, and the scan showed that it had metastasized into her omentum, her peritoneum. And that's called peritoneal carcinomatosis. It's extremely deadly. And, and we even found a research article on the web that said, you know, once that, that appears, uh, that comes on the scene, there's one study that showed that there's a 95% death likely between five to seven weeks from that detection. And we were just blown away at that. And at that point, Diane had been seeing some things on TV, a special on cannabis, and I had been doing a ton of research. And then she started opening up to, let me try some of these other things. Because, I mean, she went from 113 pounds down to about 90, 93 pounds and lost all her hair. Tremendous side effects. I mean, the, the, the jaw pain, extreme sensitivity to cold and to food in her mouth and hands. I mean, you got to eat. A neuropathy, difficulty using her hands, just turning on a lamp, doing things like that was incredibly hard. Diarrhea. At one point, she didn't leave her apartment for nine days because the diarrhea was so bad. So these horrific side effects and experiences would, would lead people to say, is there, are there other options? And you all uh, explored um, you know, alternative medicine. And it, like as you've said, and I found this with a lot of things in various states, conventional medicine and alternative medicine at any stage don't seem to get along. Uh, even something as simple as chiropractics or, or herbal medicines that people swear help them, it, it, oftentimes conventional medicine just sort of poo-poos it or, or does not have it in any part of their plan. You all had to start looking around as this was going on and you know you didn't have a lot of guides but you did a lot of research in this area and tried some things. Tell us about how that experience came about and how that also started to impact the faith. Well, the, the, we began researching uh, right away things. I was looking at all sorts of different types of treatments, but sort of deep into uh, Diane's journey, I read a book called Radical Remission, and it was this young counselor, a woman who was counseling uh, cancer patients, and she stumbled across a case of someone, what she calls radical remission, someone that was healed against all odds and without conventional treatment. And she thought, this is amazing, and went to the doctor, and the doctor just didn't want to be bothered and hear about it. And that, that also shocked her. 
And she started looking to see if there was uh, information on this in medical journals, and she found over a thousand articles. And in none of those articles, did the doctors really cared to ask the question, well, why did these people suddenly experience a radical remission? And she just made it her point to, to research this, and she interviewed over 100 people, um, looked at a thousand articles. Now she's up to 2,000 or so. But she published a book a few years back called Radical Remission, and she, she identified about five, 54, 56 factors that people named, and she realized that nine of those were recurring all the time, if not all the time. People named the same things over and over. And the amazing thing about that is, is that seven of those nine things are non-physical. Two of them are, are nutrition and supplements, but the rest of them are things like taking control of your own health, following your intuition, releasing suppressed emotions, uh, increasing positive emotions, uh, social support, support, which is really community, increasing your spiritual connection, and having a strong reason or purpose for living. These are spirit and soul things. And, and the amazing thing is, is that Diane, when she started to open up and consider other stuff, it was really a combination of those two things. She started taking CBD oil, and I started buying and prepping. Uh, she prepped a SEAC tea. She got on a humongous regimen of supplemental or botanicals. There's a guy out in uh, uh, the West Coast who has a, written a book on botanicals and cancer and cannabis and cancer. He's a brilliant person. He's probably the smartest person we met through the whole journey. And he had her on this routine of about 854 pills every month that she took. We read a book on hope, the importance of having hope in a situation like that. Our daughter came home from college. She left Brooklyn mid-senior year, came home. It's funny that Diane got better right when she came home, and she got worse right when she was preparing to leave a year later. That is a powerful thing, love and relationships and emotions. And we learned this tremendous lesson. Now, I, I have to be fair. Diane decided to also do a second line, they call it, a second form of chemo called Gemzarabraxane. And that was much milder on her. She tolerated that much better. And so we look at this. She did all these things. I mean, if, you know, acupuncture, chiropractic, um, meeting with a cancer counselor, you know, having fun. So what were these things? She wound up outliving what they predicted. She lived 17 months beyond that three-month prediction. She got an extra 14 months. So what combination was it? Was it the chemo? Was it the relationship with God? Was it Shannon coming home? We'll never really know. I actually have ideas for how to figure something like that out. I'd like to have a startup company to do that. But but the point is, she tried all these different things, and she had a, a pretty darn good 2000 and I believe, 17. Uh, it wasn't great, but it was way better than the end of the year had been on Filferinox, and then the cancer reappeared. So is this a, you know, a big data problem? Is it, it's, it's a political problem. It's a lot of things rolled up into sort of the the natural tensions between conventional medicine and alternative. And then, you know, is this really a big data problem that around the world there are, if you will, examples, hints, clues, stories, things on the internet that sort of need to be put together and mashed up and looked at to start sort of creating pathways perhaps for alternative care or different um, approaches that people could use. It, it sounds like there's there's a lot here to be sort of condensed or analyzed. Well, first of all, I love the data aspect of this, but and remind me to answer that because I'm gonna go off on a tangent yep. here. There's a lot of tribalism, corruption, and conflict of interest in medicine, just like anywhere else. And there's big bucks at, at stake. You, you may recall we interviewed a very senior guy who ran a $3 billion hospital system. 
He said to me after the interview, I was shocked. He said to me, you know, it occurred to me that oncologists have a conflict of interest. They're the only doctors who actually profit from the medicines they prescribe. And son of a gun, they're the most expensive things. Diane, in the end, spent her insurance company uh, paid $570,000 for her chemo treatments. That, that is just simply staggering. Uh, you can't tell me it costs that much to develop those drugs and to research those drugs. It's just, it's disgraceful. And it's just this sort of thing. These industries are, get built up and, and they make money and they start, they take on a life of their own. I, I call the, the negative side, the dark side of the cancer industry, big cancer. So you have those sort of things you're coming up against. A lot of wonderful people in the industry. People aren't trying to hurt each other or whatever. But when you start making that money and doing these things, you, you, you get clouded. I'm always quoting the scripture that says the human heart is the most deceitful of all things. We have an infinite capacity for self-deception. We see it in our political system. People aren't standing up to certain things right now because they don't want to lose their job or their position or, or, or their the votes or whatever. It's just amazing. So we encountered that. The thing that was fascinating, at one point, Diane filled out two different forms. She was working with this group called PANCAN, which is the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, and they're blobbing.org. And... Um, we filled out an online form where they're trying to capture data and see you know, what's, what's effective in treating cancer. But all of the questions related to surgery, chemo, and radiation. And they had a little tiny box that said, did you try anything else? And when you hit yes, the box stayed little and tiny. It didn't ask you. You couldn't put anything in. Meanwhile, when we talked to the guy on the West Coast, and he wanted to know everything about Diane. He literally had her drawing pictures about her cancer speaking about her life story. She wrote this, you read and in my book, this compelling, like, oh, I don't want to go back on cancer. I'm just starting to, I'm a chemo. I'm just starting to feel better now. He wanted to know everything about her in every single modality of care. And I'm hoping that what's happening is that the woman who wrote um, Radical Remission, that she's building a database like this. Because if you put every single thing you're, you have in, and you, when you had an improvement in your health, when you had a drop or whatever, you can start to see data rise up. And that's where this Billy Best story came in, which we've talked about in the past. But this is an enormous undertaking. One person, one organization couldn't own this. Is, is there a need for sort of a, I, I don't know, global movement, legislation? I mean, really, we're talking about global data collection here. And, uh, you know, there have been stories of, you know, in Egypt of things like a mistletoe, for example, causing certain cancers to be in remission and, and others have studied this. But is there a need for uh, some kind of a push in one particular cancer or one particular area to kind of break through maybe and show show some of these alternative uh, options? Well, I, I, I'm fond of saying I would love to get a hold of Steve Case and because <laughs> he started the company called Revolution Health. My understanding is his brother suffered, suffered from brain cancer and passed away. Uh, it, it, it doesn't take a lot of money at all. We, we, we have Amazon. People get on there for free and review books. People get on Yelp and they review a restaurant. I got news. I'll go anywhere and fill out any form about pancreatic cancer now. The, the, my passion and my desire, and when people are facing something visceral like that, and they're, they're facing death and they're suffering, people will do things. Will the data be perfect? No, but don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Someone needs to put a little money behind something like this, and we start just collecting every bit of data we can collect. Make no judgment on whether it's good or bad out of the gate. Just collect it. You can post-process it in any way you want. But I really believe there's a massive business here. I mean, I, I think if you process this data, there would be so many people interested in this. 
and you could start really seeing what works. I mean, I mentioned this guy, Billy Best, a young guy who fled cancer chemo treatments at age 16. And when he came home and a judge ruled in his favor that he didn't have to have chemo because the doctor sued him, he started looking at these five bags of letters he had received from all over the nation and the world and sorting them into piles. And there were, there were four consistent things all having to do with diet, stay away from animal proteins, dairy, sugars, refined sugars, and flour. And he says, okay, I'll do that. And he drank SCAC tea. And, and he also had this sort of natural substance in, injected in him, which the FDA ran out of the country. And he's been living for 25 years. He had advanced Hodgkin's disease. We need to understand this and find, if we really want to help people that are suffering, let's wake up and, and do these things so we can really be open and non-deceived and, and, and welcoming the truth about what heals. And oh, by the way, most of the progress that's made you know, with cancer is early detection. You know, it's not the drugs. The drugs aren't, they're terribly damaging and toxic and, and the real key is early detection and that's why pancreatic cancer is such a killer. So, yeah, you know, let's go back and as so many people are listening and say, you know, what are some recommendations uh, that you want to make for people who are facing serious diagnosis today? Well, the biggest thing is 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 to stop. Cancer grows over a long period of time. And I don't care how, how serious something is or whatever. Just at least stop for at least for several days and take a breath and, and don't rush any decision. And getting a second opinion, you know, we have Michael Barry on here. He was the former head of pastoral care for the Cancer Treatment Centers of America. And he just said, you know, get a second opinion. I was shocked that that was his top recommendation. And, um, and, and believing in, in what you do when you pick a, a certain treatment approach, you got to pick something you're comfortable with, take control of it, and believe in it. If you have some uh, apprehension or concern about your doctor or people around you, um, you, you've got to stop and, and find somebody else. You've got to be happy with the people you're working with. I, I think really an integrative approach is critical. Same thing that Diane did, which gave her quite a bit of extra life. If you're a believer, a uh, follower of Jesus Christ, I would certainly seek his wisdom and direction. You know, just humble yourself and pray and praise and repent and, and seek his will and direction. Um, and, and just for people in general, um, take sufficient time to make these decisions and again, get these second opinions because they're incredibly important. And did you find that there were local uh, Christian healing ministries that, or, or even just healing ministries in other faiths as you were sort of looking at this on the internet and then in your own community? There are, and, and as you know, I've done a real deep analysis of, of healing in the Bible, trying to look at miraculous healing. I mean, it's, it, it truly is something that doesn't happen very often. I think the most important thing I learned was that when you look at all these accounts in the New Testament, People were outwardly focused. They weren't always focused on their own illnesses. We're very selfish in the world these days, in particular in this country. And Christians get very concerned about illness when it's their illness. But what we're supposed to be doing is looking outward at people that don't have a relationship with Jesus, going out to them, sharing the good news of the coming kingdom, and, and healing them. And that's, those, that's what happened in the New Testament. When people went out, those three things were bundled together. And, and they were a commandment. This was not a suggestion or whatever Jesus told people, go out and do the following. So I think uh, my personal opinion after doing that analysis in the scriptures is that this, this healing has faded away because of that reason. We're very selfish focused. We don't really have faith about these things because we've seen it slowly disappear. I think there can be a real renaissance in this sort of healing if, if people really start being outwardly focused. 
So prayer first, right? Before well, before anything. Well, prayer know. incredibly important, but again, going out to people who don't. Our, our job. Jesus was very clear in Acts, the book of Acts. He said, "You know, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere." That's what. The disciples were supposed to be, and then the new disciples, you, Sal, and me, were these new disciples. And John, you know, he says, and you must also tell others about me. We've been commanded to tell people about Jesus Christ. And and that's the good news. The good news is there. He came once, and he partially established, he revealed, gave us a powerful foretaste of a coming kingdom where there's no more sickness, there's no more illness, there's no more tears and war and strife. And he gave us that foretaste with these miraculous healing, and he had a message. Hey, you're, we're all sinners. We're under a very serious death penalty. But the wonderful thing is God loves you so much that he's going to give you a way out, and it's really, really simple. It's not how good you are or how many uh, prayers you say or whatever. It's simply that you recognize your sinfulness and that you need someone to substitute, uh, provide a sacrifice for you. And that's what Jesus did. He died for us. And when you accept that sacrifice, you pass from death to citizenship in that kingdom. And what a cool thing that is, you know? So that's the most important healing. I mean, whether you get well or not physically in this life or not, if your relationship with, with God is healed and, and, and you receive this eternal life, this promise of what they call salvation, hey, man, you got it all. So go out with your faith. Go all in, right? Pick, pick something and go all in. Go do the molecular testing you know try the non-toxic treatment if that's what you feel you're called to do uh and it's a journey right it's a oh. journey filled with god's grace and here's another thing please be patient with those who are sick um i was learning lessons about grace up until the moment diane breathed her last and and just understand that when people it's their lives if they want to make a decision and you strongly disagree with this, and this is what the Bible calls idolatry. We all think we're smarter than everyone else. We all think, frankly, we're gods. And there were many times I disagreed greatly with, with Diane. And I, would, I learned over time just to say to her, look, I have something I want to share with you. I'm doing it because I love you and I have to share it with you and you can do whatever you want with it. I would tell her what I believe she should do. She typically didn't follow through. And then I would go back to loving her and serving her and being graceful. And, and that's the way it should be. We, we got to stop trying to impose our will on everybody and learn how to, to be with people that are thinking differently with us, that are, that are radically different than us, and just showing them that grace of Jesus Christ, because that's what he did. He died for us while we were nailing him to a cross and spitting on him and, and beating him and cursing at him. And he still, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Well, Ed, look, thanks for sharing uh, the story. Thanks for sharing the journey uh, into the world of cancer, uh, one of alternative medicine, and as you say, one of stop and, and ask yourself, you know, put your hands together and pray to God for guidance, for decision-making, and then go all in. Don't, don't be afraid to try something. Don't be afraid with that faith in hand and have that patience for those around you. I love the story. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for sharing Diane's uh, story, the hard-fought lessons you've learned. Look, we're out of time. A recording of this program uh, will be found at the graceand30.com and WERA.FM websites, as well as on iTunes and Stitcher. This is Ed and Sal signing off from Grace and 30 on WERA, Arlington's 96.7. Have a great night, and be sure to tune in to Grace. <laughs>